This podcast is sponsored by Chargeify. Chargeify provides specialized billing and data management tools to give B2B SaaS companies the competitive edge. Over the past 12 years, Chargeify has partnered with champions in SaaS like SpendSpark, Mailgun, Connect, and EarthClass Mail to streamline their billing processes, build and nurture lasting relationships with customers, and strategically optimize their organizations for long-term growth. Chargeify's innovative software empowers every B2B SaaS company to step into the future of billing. Visit chargeify.com forward slash SaaSdoc to learn more. If you're one of the world's nearly 1 billion spreadsheet users, you're likely familiar with the time-consuming effort that goes into formatting, emailing, and sharing your spreadsheets. That's exactly why Grid is here to help. Grid is a no-code web tool that transforms your important spreadsheet data into compelling visual narratives and interactive web documents. If you use spreadsheets to construct complex growth models, revenue projections, or strategic analysis, Grid will give you your work that wow factor. Grid lets your team interact with your spreadsheet models, compare scenarios, and share them securely in minutes. With Grid, you'll never email another spreadsheet again. Sign up for free at www.grid.is. That's G-R-I-D. All of those other stresses of trying to build a company that I think were the hardest pieces, they were headwinds on all of the other stuff that we were doing really well. If I had to do it again, it would be like invest a little bit more time up front in planning for those different scenarios because we probably could have gone from one to 10 in half the time had we not had all of these stresses and blockers and pain points sort of just operationally um, and structurally around us that were kind of causing friction. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, a zero to 10 edition. I'm your host, Alex Suma, CEO of SaaStock, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Christian Owens, who is the CEO and co-founder of Paddle. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for having me. Good good to have you back on the podcast, but uh, for the first time on uh, the zero to 10 sub-series where we, we chart the journey of uh, uh, some amazing companies that have uh, gotten to that 10 million uh, ARR uh, milestone. Uh, I think you crossed this uh, you know, some time ago, um, but uh, we, we kind of want to unpick this uh, a little bit, Christian, so appreciate you sharing that with us. So before we do, again, maybe for those that haven't listened to the previous podcast or don't know who Paddle is, never, never heard of you uh, before, who is Christian Owens, uh, first of all, and then why did you found Paddle? Yeah, so I'm Christian Owens, founder, CEO of Paddle. Um, my my journey is a, I guess you could say interesting one. Um, I taught myself to code when I was very young, started building software when I was very young, fell in love with the internet, um, built my first software company when I was about kind of 15, 16, dropped out of school, um, scaled that into a, like a reasonable sized business during kind of four or five million in revenue. Um, in a pretty short period of time over a kind of 18 month period. 
And that's sort of where I, I kind of encountered the problems that we now try and solve at Paddle. So we were a B2C or kind of prosumer SaaS business. We were building invoicing software um, for freelancers. And we were, it was pretty low price product, kind of a hundred thousand odd customers selling in every country you can imagine sort of. And then very quickly, we, we realized we were, we weren't doing the stuff we enjoyed anymore. We weren't building the product and talking to customers. We were dealing with all of this other stuff behind the scenes. Like how do you pay taxes and take payments and deal with recurring billing and, and all of that stuff. Um, and that's really kind of the genesis of paddle was like, we went and searched for a solution for this. Most of the people we talked to were like, you have to build it yourself from, from parts. Um, and we kind of thought there must be a better way and, and started building a paddle to kind of solve all of that back office problem of what we call revenue delivery. So everything from payments, taxes, recurring billing, how do you stay compliant in a hundred different countries? How do you deal with all of that stuff? Um, so that's what we do today. Um, have been building the company over the last eight years or so. Feels like both a lot longer and a lot shorter than that. Um, but no, it's uh, it's been a it's been a journey. So launched twenty thirteen, something around then. Yeah, started the company twenty twelve. Launched the first version kind of early twenty thirteen. Can you tell us a little bit about that that first kind of product launch, uh, the story, uh, like behind that? You know, some of the tactics, maybe, and what were the results? Yeah, so Harrison, my co-founder, uh, and I, um, we were both 18 at the time. It's our first job, like real kind of job. Um, we'd built businesses before, but never built a company. So we had no idea what we were doing. So really, the the launch process for that, we didn't really know what marketing was or PR was or sort of any of that stuff. The launch process for that was just us talking to companies that we admired. So like products that we used um, people that we kind of had come across or read blog posts from in the industry um, and running what can be looked back on as a very terrible outbound sales process. Um, but we kind of did that and it was sort of like a, a friends and family first set of customers. Of It was all of these products that that we really admired. Our product wasn't particularly great at the time. Um, we really built just the, the thing that we needed. It was like the very bare bones um, but it was almost sort of like a instant product market fit simply because we only spoke to people who looked like us, like we were building this product for us. So we were two, two kids in a bedroom trying to build some software. And we went and looked for people who were trying to do the same thing. People who were building software companies at night or on the weekends and had full-time jobs. And we ticked all of the boxes for those people. Um, so it was a, it, the story of Paddle is kind of like a, uh, very gradually and then kind of all at once situation where the first couple of years of the business um, sort of like we did as much revenue in probably the first sort of two and a half years of the business as we do in a day today. If we look at it back then, I mean, there, there were quite a good number of SaaS companies and products uh, around. I mean, now, I mean, SaaS is obviously uh, it, it, it's booming, right? And mm-hmm. uh, a great place, certainly, if you're, you're doing like revenue delivery for uh, for for SaaS, um, when, when you talk about like products that you admired or companies that you admired, so let, let's say if I put, if we put it into context today, um, I am going to start a SaaS company, but I admire like Slack and Intercom or Notion. Um, so was it something like that where you you had like I don't know Basecamp or uh, Intercom or whatever, and say hey we're building this product, and you reach out to those guys? Was it the big guys or was it more? Uh, you, you know, no, it, companies that yeah. You, 
Yeah, I would have loved it if it was Notion and, and Basecamp and, and Intercom and those guys. It was more, it was very much more the people who looked like us sort of from a company level as opposed to from a product level. So like there's an interesting, I think, phenomenon that happens um, in sort of, and you see it quite a lot now. It wasn't the case back then, but like now you have the like bootstrap maker community, you have like indie hackers and, and things like that. And it's all about the one the one person SaaS company who's going off and they're kind of charting their all of their milestones from sort of 1K MRR to maybe they get to five or six and they quit their job and then they get to 10 or 20. And some of those companies end up being businesses doing one or 2 million a month um, over time. Not all of them, but, but uh, uh, kind of more than you think kind of thing actually turn into real businesses as opposed to these things that started as hobbies. So we were really starting with the people who were sort of kind of, they were past that, that point of this is a hobby and into the point where it was a business. Um, and it was kind of those people that we really admired because that's what Harrison and I were trying to do like with the previous one. And we'd succeeded with that. We'd built a kind of 4 million run rate business um, in a pretty short period of time. But those are the people that we kind of really empathized with. It was the people who uh, loved building a product. It was one or two people you didn't have, they didn't have the infrastructure of a business around them. It was just, you love building the product during the day. And then at nighttime, you answer customer support tickets and sort of you do all that stuff. So it was really just talking to those people. And I think that's where we were able to strike a chord, which was there's all of this stuff that you're doing. You don't particularly enjoy doing. It's sort of, you love building the product. You love talking to customers. You don't love doing all this other stuff. So as soon as we started having those conversations with people, and these were businesses doing five, 10, 15, 20 grand a month. They weren't huge, um, but they were sustainable. Uh, as soon as we started having that conversation with people, people kind of pretty quickly clicked onto the idea. How long till you, you got product market fit? And like, how, how did you get there? What were the, some of the steps to get there? Product market fit's an interesting one because I feel like it's a thing that you, you constantly like cycle in and out of um, as a business. Like that first version of, of Paddle that we launched had almost instant product market fit with those types of people, those five, 10, 15 grand a month SaaS businesses. Um, and then very quickly, we kind of almost got too big for our boots. And then we're like, okay, we're gonna go and sell to the business that does 250K a month. And immediately everything crumbled. Um, like I remember when we were probably like two and a half years in and we, deal we realized we were dealing with other people's money and we were two sort of 18 year olds at that time, kind of 19, 20, never run a business sort of. And we had a, an investor at the time who was like, you guys should consider hiring like a finance director or a CFO or something. And I remember um, we found a great CFO, still our CFO today, seven years later or six years later, Hugo. Um, and we just signed um, two months earlier, we just signed our first customer that did like $300,000 a month in volume. Um, so by far our biggest customer, sort of the, the revenue from that one customer eclipsed the two dozen other customers that we had combined. Um, and I remember we, we sold them, we signed them, they launched 60 days in, they churned. And it was the day before he was supposed to join as our CFO. And I remember having to call him up and being like, Hey, Hugo, really excited for you to join tomorrow. By the way, we just lost 90% of our revenue. Um, sort of you call with that. And fortunately, he had the he had the vision to, to be like, okay, we'll get through it. Um, but it's kind of this, this the point I'm trying to make is sort of 
product market fit for us and I think kind of for other businesses as well is the cyclical thing that you go through for different segments or different types of customer. And as soon as you sort of out expand outside of a certain segment or even geography or size bracket or whatever, you have to kind of go through that process of finding product market fit again and again. Like we're going through it right now as we start to, um, as we start to kind of sell into companies who are doing five or $10 million a month in, in revenue. These are potentially public companies who have a very different set of requirements from those original people who were doing 10 or 15 grand a month um, in, in subscription volume. Uh, so I think we found it very quickly, but it's probably been a case of trying to reinvent ourselves every 12 to 18 months as we wanted to kind of increase the breadth of, of kind of applicable customer that we had. How, how early on did you first raise uh, capital? Who was that with? How did you do it? Uh, yeah. We raised money pre having a business, um, not because we needed it, but because because we had this successful business. We hired somebody to run that, um, and Harris and I moved to London with a goal. We knew the problem that we wanted to solve. We didn't know how we were going to solve it, and we met a guy called Mark Pearson, who runs a fund now called um, Fuel Ventures, uh, and he'd built a really successful business, completely bootstrapped, did like twenty million ish in revenue. Um, very profitable. And he was kind of investing his own money. And we met him and we didn't need the money to start the business. But the thing that we really admired was sort of, we'd built businesses before, but never companies. And he'd built a company with all the infrastructure around it and things like that. So we raised 150K um, from him, um, more for the advice than anything else. It was more like a ask for advice, get money type situation. And we went and sat in his office and that was our first kind of office's paddle. Um, but that was a process that I met him over Twitter. Like I saw a tweet, I replied to it. He DM'd me afterwards with like, do you want to get a coffee? Um, it was like a two hour meeting where I discussed like the story to date and how loved building products, but ran into this problem and it was a huge headache and nobody's really talking about it. Um, and he basically invested on the spot. Um, which was entirely kind of strange to me. I didn't really know what raising money was. Um, but that happened, sort of we moved to London and that's when we started building the business. And sort of, we were so naive at the point, we didn't even realize that we could spend the money. Like I remember Harrison used to drive 60 miles a day to work in like a, a Renault Clio that was a death trap. Um, but we didn't realize we were allowed to spend money on like a computer screen. So he used to like shuttle his TV from home to work every day to like plug into his computer and use. And then sort of like we turn around to the investor and they're just like, um, you realize like this screen is like 300 pounds. You're allowed to spend that. And it was like all of these moments, like we were so naive about building this business. Um, but so we raised the money. We didn't really use it. And then kind of we started hiring people and building a team and, and things like that. About the, the, I guess that first journey to a million in revenue, uh, maybe some of the challenges that you had to overcome to go from zero to one million. Yeah, I think focus was a big one. Um, of the same story about us kind of having these customers who were doing ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month in subscription volume, and then going and signing one that was four hundred. Um, sounds like a really easy way to kind of shortcut your way to get to a million. Um, but it, it becomes about kind of sustainability. Like we had that customer for two months. Fortunately, since then, we've never really churned any significant size of customer in, in sort of seven years since then. But it was because we like really learned our lesson through that. 
quite painfully learned our lesson through that of this had to be a gradual process of kind of like chipping away at the customers that we did have product market fit for and gradually expanding product market fit. And I think that our, all our initial kind of plans and models and things like that had us sort of going from, oh, we're going to sell to these small businesses and then these much larger businesses very, very quickly. And that process took two, long, two years longer than we thought it would. But we built, but the thing that is the beneficial thing in that scenario, it meant that we built a far more like resilient business with hundreds of customers who really loved the product, um, who in them, they in themselves were growing. But that was like one of the big lessons through sort of that, that million is everybody, like everything that we were reading was like, it's a sprint to a million. It's sort of like the, the process of getting from zero to a million, you should do as fast as you possibly can. And we tried to do that. Uh, but then we kind of realized it's sort of you, if you walk the bit from zero to a million, you build a more robust business and then you can sprint from one to 10 because you have the foundation to be able to do it. How, how long have you done one million? Did it take you to go from, uh, well, to get to one million in ARR? So zero to one was probably three and a half, four years. And then one to 10? Two, two. Two. So two and a half, something like that. It was much, much shorter. What about the, the challenges uh, from getting from one to 10? What were some of the challenges that you, you can kind of share? I think everything changes at certain inflection points in a business. Typically, they're based on people as opposed to money, but the two sort of correlate with each other. So you go from being a team of six who can sit around one table and everybody knows everything to a team of 20 where everybody kind of knows everything to a team of 100 where nobody really knows anything unless you're really deliberate about communicating it. and. I think if you take the same approach that we did, which was walk from zero to one and then sprint from one to 10, you end up going through those cycles very, very quickly. Like as soon as you fix the communication problem of going from 10 people to 30 people, you immediately, as soon as you fix that, you're 70 people and it's broken again. So I think for us, it was actually, it was nothing to do with needing to scale the product or figuring out how we go to market or any of that stuff. It was figuring out how we build the the kind of the machine that builds the machine kind of thing. How do we build the company? How do we have forecasting and planning? And how do we hire great people? And how do we capacity plan our offices? We went through five offices in um, 24 months because we just kept adding people and we're like, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll just sort of do whatever. And then suddenly you get to the point where the office is fitted out and you've got enough space for people and you filled it all and you need to look for somewhere else. So it was things like that, like real growing pains of, of growing a business were the hardest things from going from one to 10. And it sounds really easy if like we were like, okay, we had the, the go-to-market stuff down and we had the product stuff down and, and we could do that stuff. Obviously there were pains throughout that process of we figured it out, but it was really the learning that all of this other stuff is just huge amounts of pressure and a big distraction from getting good at product or getting good at go-to-market because like... No one's no one's a performing sales rep if they don't if they if they like they have to do their calls in the in the toilet because there's no sort of soundproof area for them to do a call and that was like a reality that we had and you had people who were sort of significantly demotivated by the fact that they had to go around the corner or to a coffee shop or whatever just to get some work done literally because this office was jam packed with 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 humans um, and it was sort of all of those other stresses of trying to build a company that I think were the hardest pieces. They were, they were headwinds on all of the other stuff that we were doing really well. 
And I think doing if I had to do it again, it would be like invest a little bit more time up front in planning for those different scenarios. Because we probably could have gone from one to 10 in half the time had we not had all of these stresses and blockers and pain points sort of just operationally um, and structurally around us that were kind of causing friction. I was going to say as an aside, but it's not necessarily because um, we're talking about it. But so you, you've gone, as you said, through three, four offices in, in 24 months uh, or, or more. Right. And that being a kind of challenge, we're now uh, speaking to each other over Zoom, where just UK is coming out of, uh, of lockdown, yeah. or this kind of version, this tier of lockdown. Do you intend then to, is everybody in panel coming back to that, uh, to, to the office, or are you doing like, we've seen companies like uh, Drift, who are saying we're now digital first, but we still have like office hubs. What, what, what What's happening, uh, I guess, from, from your side on, on that perspective? We're kind of doing both. Um, we're certainly being more flexible in one where we hire people to how people want to work. We were always sort of remote friendly. So we had strong contingent of people who would work from home a handful of days a week or, or kind of even have reasonable stretches of time where they would kind of work from home or an Airbnb or something like that. We, we had that in the company. So when all of this stuff hit, we were pretty well set up to deal with it. Um, going back into it, sort of like we haven't had a, an office we let our lease expire um for like we actually haven't had a physical space for about six months now um we are in the process of building out a new space but like our intention is to give everybody the option like you can work from wherever you want my feeling i really love offices i love the energy that you get when you walk in i love being able to collaborate with people and things like that i think there is a place for that um in the day-to-day -day, like workflow of everybody and like my philosophy around this sort of, and it's a hot topic like internally right now, but my philosophy around this over the last kind of couple of months has been, let's give everybody the freedom to work in the way that they want to work. Let's build the greatest office that we possibly can. Like one in London, we'll have one in New York. Um, we might build out others if we dis discover there are pockets of people that we're hiring in specific locations. Let's build really great offices that people want to come to, not necessarily to go and sit at a desk, but to collaborate with each other and kind of to have meetings and to kind of do all of this stuff. So we're kind of taking that approach of give people the flexibility, but build really cool spaces um, that people can utilize to do better work than they would be able to over Zoom. It's difficult to get around a whiteboard over Zoom. Um, so like, let's give people the facilities to be able to do that. Um, and then one of the other things that I want to do is, is introduce, um, we, always, we always used to do these paddle retreats like once a summer. So we would get everybody in the company together and we would go somewhere, but um, it would be sort of two days of like 80% fun, 20% kind of, we do some presentation, we talk about our strategy, we'd kind of do some workshops and things like that. I think making a much more deliberate thing of that once or twice a year, as we become slightly more distributed intentionally or not, um, but like really intentionally having those one or two times a year that we get everybody together in one place and we use that as sort of a way for us to articulate our strategy for people to meet each other. Um, like we were talking just before this, that so we've hired 50 plus people in the last year that none of us have met, like we haven't met each other. And I still think there's a really important kind of place for whether that's through an office that people can go to, or whether that's through us just organizing to get everybody from around the world in one location for a period of time.
No, definitely. And uh, I think, again, obviously, we, we've seen this acceleration to remote first or, you know, digital uh, first working, uh, as Drift call it. Um, and there's going to be these scenarios where, you know, employees haven't met, you know, if you've hired 50 people, you haven't met. Um, and uh, these things are going to become important. And I think as well, and I, I, I sort of, of course, read a bit about it, but in terms of perhaps the benefit to conferences, it will be, you know, it'll be a place where actually, you know, you know uh, businesses are, are, are there, you know, going to be meeting with their existing customers and leveraging that, meeting their teams even, you, mm. you know, uh, um, uh, I think even more so in seeing that kind of importance of, Leveraging that that conference kind of opportunity, which uh, I, I hope yeah. to some extent. Uh, well, I think uh, I think that's been true for a, a while with conferences. Like the reason I always went to conferences was there's a ton of great content, but it's a congregation of a bunch of people in one place that I don't usually get to see in person or meet. Yeah. Um, and then even when the content's great, I watch some of it live, but there's always too much of it to watch live, so I end up watching ninety percent of it on demand later, either at the hotel room or when I get back home. And I still, I think that, I think that if nothing else, sort of those conferences are going to serve a huge purpose to just get people together. Um, I also think there's going to be a massive conference boom as soon as people are able to kind of like travel and, and see each other as well. If I'm desperate to go for a conference. I'm desperate to be jet lagged. <laughs> like, I, like I haven't been jet lagged in over a year and I'm excited for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I don't know, like about desperation with jet lag, but I, I see the point. I, I mean, I had, um, I think, well, yeah, 2019, because I didn't really travel in 2020, um, but I was constantly traveling, but, you, you know, long distance, US, Brazil, Australia, you know, Asia, and, you know, it sounds terrible, but you know, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. But, um, but afterwards, it, like going there was never a bad thing. And I always enjoyed that moment being on the plane and mm. having a bit of like me time, if I'm allowed to kind of like say that. Uh, and then you, you get to, um, uh, you, you know, the, the location, Sao Paulo, have a great time there. Then you, I, I was always kind of like exhausted. Then you have that flight and it's, you know, you're getting landing back at 4 a.m. and then you haven't slept. And then it does take that jet lag, you, you know. Take, oh, it definitely, it definitely takes a toll for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but definitely, I, I feel you like uh, just having a long distance flight, you know, would be quite nice. Uh, yeah. just to do that and having your changes change of scenery more than anything else like uh, definitely um and what about um and we'll go a little bit of uh, off topic but in terms of the three three to five sort of key steps that you took uh to get to 10 million in revenue yeah there were a few things i think um nailing our actual like sales process like going from that thing of Harrison and I being on a lot of calls with people and then the big the big mistake that we made in the one to 10 range on that stuff was trying to hire salespeople and then train them to act like Harrison or I um, in a sales process, trying to like emulate us um, because obviously that's all we knew. That's what was working. Like, why wouldn't we get the the um, the sales reps to come in and tell the same stories and anecdotes and kind of references and things like that? And then you realize, and then I think the thing that we realized was two things were missing from, from that as a process. One was process, like kind of, we were very casually approaching this stuff. So implementing a, a solid CRM, giving people real discipline around how they use that so that we could use data to make decisions. And then the second thing was, 
the reason that Harrison and I were successful in a sales process wasn't because of the anecdotes and the stories that we were telling it because we were being authentic It's because we were like speaking about a pain that we had and the challenge that we had, and we were being ourselves and we were literally hiring people and telling them to come in and do the opposite of that and be inauthentic and not be themselves. So I think as soon as we did those two things, add process, give people resources and materials that they can use um, and give them the flexibility to, yeah, stay on message and here's a bunch of materials and things like that, but be authentic and put your own spin on things and, and sort of actually build a genuine relationship with a potential customer. Um, that was the kind of turning point for us from a, from a go-to-market perspective. I think the second, one of the second like big learnings was we can't please everyone like from a product build perspective. Um, I think when you're in the probably zero to $1 million range, number of customers you have is small enough. They all kind of look pretty similar. And when one of them asks for something, it usually makes pretty logical sense to apply to all. Um, and as you start to kind of expand the group of customers you're going after, go after different customers who maybe have slightly different needs, I think for slightly too long, we tried to please everybody in that process rather than getting really narrow and really specific about what it was that we were good at. So learning when to say no um, to customers um, on like, we, we're probably not going to implement that feature in the next six months. Um, but also knowing when to say no to the wrong revenue um, as well. Uh, it's very, very tempting when you're doing a million dollars a year in revenue and a customer comes along that would pay you $200,000 a year and your gut's telling you like, oh, $200,000 a year, like 20% bump in revenue immediately. But everything else is telling you that this is going to be a disaster um, for whatever reason. Um, pricing's bad. Sort of the product isn't quite a good fit. There's too many workarounds, whatever it is. Like that voice is probably right. Um, and we did that a couple of times of, of take on customers that we probably shouldn't have um, for the revenue. Uh, and sort of in a number of instances, we were able to make them work out um, and everybody was happy and we were able to satisfy the customer and things like that. In other instances, um, sort of we learned the hard way that those are the customers that you, you sink a ton of time into um, at the expense of potentially 10 other customers that would have been in aggregate worth more than that one. Um, so I think that around kind of sales rigor and, and getting that right, saying no to things and getting really hyper-focused and specific on product, knowing when to say no to wrong revenue, I think would be my top three. And then the fourth one is that naturally occurs as you start to get north of a, a million um, is you can probably get to a million with you almost managing or knowing or kind of being involved with either you're probably still involved with every key hiring decision at 10 million, but you're certainly not involved in the day-to-day -day management of those people. Um, especially if you're like 30, 40, 50 people in the organization. Um, so getting really good at managing people and hiring people who will manage others. Um, that was one of the, the, that was the layer of the business that we underinvested in for a long time. We were, we really invested in the like individual contributors. How do we hire the best product manager or engineer or sales rep or whatever it is. We really invested in the exec team as well. Like how do we hire a really solid VP sales or CTO or whomever it is. And we neglected that kind of like middle management piece because it had the word middle management in it. And we were like, that's a dirty word. No one should ever go anywhere near middle management. They serve no purpose. And then you realize when you're 
50 people and it's all a bit unwieldy and people don't know what their job prospects are and people are leaving and things like that, you realize, okay, this does serve a purpose. And you have to be really deliberate about building it out. And that's one of the, I think the key things, maturing points that you have to go through as a SaaS business on the road from one to 10 as well. What about yourself as a CEO? So uh, CEO of the business at the age of 18, therefore like, you know, uh, a lack of ex- experience in those kind of early days. How have you learned to be a good CEO? Like, uh, obviously now you, you've got, uh, what have you got? Like, uh, you know, seven, eight years, uh, you know, of experience, but like over time, how have you learned? When did you actually feel comfortable in the CEO shoes uh, as well? So I think it was a difficult one for me. I think there was a, there was a version of the CEO that I thought I should be, um, like I think at the beginning, like there was just me. It was me and Harrison dividing, conquering, um, sort of if he didn't do something, I would do it. If I didn't do something, he would do it. Kind of you pick up slack for each other and the goal is the goal. You just get it done. And then I think as we matured from being like kind of two of us in a room to a company, I think there was the version of the CEO that I thought I should be that comes out in books and like all that stuff. And then the version of the CEO that I think other people thought I should be, and then the version of the CEO that I wanted to be. Um, And I think sort of, it's really easy, I think when all of those three things are the same. Um, But I think in often times, like they're not the same. And it's like a a big Venn diagram of of sort of the areas of overlap are, are kind of smaller and bigger in some areas than others. And I think the thing that I found about myself was I really loved product. I really loved the thing that we were building. I really loved thinking about the future, like the long-term, like what could we build this into? Um, I was good with customers, um, but I wasn't great at running that like structured process of of running a deal. Um, I was technically reasonably competent, but self-taught. And as we started to scale, that probably wasn't an area that I should touch anymore. Um, I really enjoyed marketing and sort of telling the story and sort of like really defining the things that we st- stood for as a company. And I think that I think the expectations of myself was I have to be good at all of these things. And then I think the thing that I really realized over time as I started to mature is I can pick those things. The important thing is not the it, the important thing is that those other things sort of don't get neglected. So it then becomes about like my job number one is probably make sure we don't run our money. Um, and number two is make sure that like we have the right people in the business to lead those things that Harrison or I individually aren't very good at or don't want to do. And I think the latter thing um, is a tricky one sometimes, especially for like first time founders of like, there feels like there's this expectation on you that like, maybe you don't want to do these things, but that's what a CEO does. A CEO is involved in the detailed forecasting and financial planning and comes up with the budget alongside the finance team and things like that. For me, like the best way of doing that was to hire the best CFO that we could and be like, Hugo, I will support you in every way that I can and making this plan the best that it can possibly be. But you're going to be a hundred times better than I ever am at kind of doing this piece of work, go run with it. Um, But I will back you up in, in whatever way possible. And I think that was that's probably a, a thing that I have only fully come to grips with in the last like kind of couple of years of being okay at being that saying like nope 
I'm not going to get involved in that. Um, there's a piece of me that's like fighting against that because I always want to be involved in everything and sort of lack of control and, and sort of all that stuff. But I think biggest learning for me was accept the things you're not good at and the things that you don't want to do and don't do them. It's good advice. I know that when, if your business is looking to scale up, if you're looking to reach any kind of scale, I think it's something that a CEO probably needs to come to terms with and say, what am I good at and how can I get people that are better than me, you know, into, into those seats. And uh, I mean, I've, I've not long read uh, like Rocket Fuel, uh, I think mm. by Gino Wickman and talk about the visionary integrator role. And often what we see with the scale up CEOs that they're the visionaries, they founded the company and they they love doing these certain things like, you know, marketing, telling the story, uh, speaking to customers, et, et, et cetera. And then, you know, getting the integrators in to do the, the less, I don't know, sexy stuff, but uh, but where, where they can The be- stuff that actually keeps the machine running there, yeah. like- Exactly. Like that makes it successful. Whilst we're all on um, long-haul flights to uh, some nice... Exactly. To, to, to so, exciting places around the world to tell stories. That's it. That's it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, if you could go back to when you founded the business, um, from what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself? Probably just like slow down and enjoy it. Like it's really fun. Like we get to come to work every day, work on a thing that we enjoy working on, hopefully, um, build a product that we think should exist. Um, we're in the really fortunate position specifically at Paddle that we get to hopefully help thousands of other SaaS businesses and we love SaaS businesses. Um, I think Harrison and I have always been guilty of never celebrating wins um, or very, very rarely celebrating wins um, uh, to the point where it's become a bit of like a running joke. Um, where like we will hit a milestone that we've been talking about for years and then we'll spend all of like three minutes being like, oh yeah, cool. Like what's the next one? Um, and I think kind of, if I could start again, I'd be like, take a minute, like for each one of those things, because um, like the, it, it's kind of like a grass is always greener thing um, of your three people in a room trying to build a thing. And you're always thinking about like the milestone in the future and you're thinking, oh, it will be great as soon as we hire this CFO, or it'll be great as soon as we hire this strategic account exec, or the CMO, or this person, or this person, or as soon as we hit five million in revenue, like kind of we'll we'll kind of pause and, and take a minute. And I think every single one of those instances, we haven't done that. Um, we've just kind of plowed ahead. Um, and I think kind of you very quickly, although maybe it's a sprint from one to ten. It's certainly a marathon from one to a hundred. Um, and I think sort of, especially, I think the last year has taught us all this as well of like, a, like you can very quickly get into a position where all you do is eat, sleep, breathe, work. Um, and I don't think, honestly, I don't think anything, there's anything wrong with that if you love it. But I do think that sort of you can make space to celebrate kind of when you do something well. And I think as the company grows as well, and I think this would be the lesson to myself is like, it's not, you don't celebrate those wins for you. If you don't need it, if Harrison and I don't need a, a self pat on the back to say, oh, we hit 20 million in revenue or 30 or whatever the number is, um, or whatever the, the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning is like the team that you build does like the group of 200 people that work at Paddle, like it's not fair on them to kind of skip over the, the things that they work so hard for, um, especially as as we 
elevate into roles that aren't rolling our sleeves up as much and getting down and building the feature or winning the customer or taking the flight to do the meeting. Um, and it's important that we acknowledge that stuff. So that would be my one key piece of advice um, for myself. Cause I think you probably have a much more fun time of it. Um, and everybody else probably feels much more appreciated kind of throughout that journey for just pausing and taking a second to acknowledge when you do something good. Final questions of conscious of, uh, of time, but it is the final question, so uh, we should be good. What are, the, what are the top resources that perhaps have helped you, you, you know, in this journey and uh, the ones that you would, uh, I guess, recommend uh, for founders listening? Yeah, um, I think there are a lot of books um, that I think I really like the books that don't necessarily tell you so much what to do, but tell you sort of either what not to do or what they did. So I think Hard Thing About Hard Things is a great book. Um, That's probably my favorite, uh, just because I think like after reading that book, you realize whatever's going wrong in your company, it could be probably 10 to 100 times worse. And that could be 10 to 100 times more pain. Um, I think more than anything else, the thing that's helped me is just knowing and talking to and building a kind of network with other people who are building companies, regardless of if they're 10 times bigger than us or 10 times smaller than us. Um, everybody's going through the same stuff all the time. Um, I think things like SaaS stock have really helped for that. Of I have uh, like people and we text now, obviously, because we can't meet each other, but like I have people who we joke with are like, conference friends. Like we only ever see each other and go to dinner and like have fun and whatever at conferences. But um, that would be, that used to be three or four or five times a year, which is more than I see kind of my normal friends sometimes. Um, so I think kind of really just building a network of people and, and very quickly you realize that, that these people who kind of, um, kind of tweet great, like kind of pithy quotes and have shining articles about them and everything are in exactly the same situation, stressing about the exact same things. And I think that that kind of camaraderie and, and sort of like togetherness that you get just out of having a community of people. Um, I think I've learned more from like the the group of people that you know, as well as I know, because we all meet at your events. Um, sort of, I've learned more from those people than I have from any book or blog post or kind of anything else. So I would say kind of invest time in that. And they tend to be the most forgiving relationships as well, because if you ignore a text for a month because you've been snowed under, like they're the only people in the world who truly get it in comparison to the people that you know, because you live next door to them or whatever. Yeah, no, good stuff. Uh, great advice. Well, Christian, you've been a fantastic guest. Where can people find you and Paddle uh, online? Yeah, so paddle.com um, for Paddle stuff. If you want to re- reach me directly, it's just Christian at paddle.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, Christian B. Owens. Couldn't get it without the B, unfortunately. Uh, but maybe maybe one day when I'm big enough. I hope the B is real. Uh, <laughs> Good stuff, Christian. Thanks so much uh, for being great guests on the SAS Revolution Show 0 to 10 edition. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDoc conferences around the world.